Our scripture text this evening is Galatians 5, verse 1, just Galatians 5, verse 1. And we will also be reading a longer section from Colossians chapter 2, Colossians 2, verses 8 to 23. Galatians 5, verse 1, that can be found on page 1,239. And Colossians 2 can be found on page 1,252. We'll also be looking at the Belgic Confession, Article 25. That can be found in your Forms and Prayers book on page 180. Sounds like I'm giving a math quiz or something with all the numbers I'm throwing at you right now. But I'll just say Galatians 5, 1, Colossians 2, and Article 25. That way we're back in church and not in the, the math classroom. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Father in heaven, we pray that you would send your spirit, indeed we know the spirit, you dwell in us, and we pray that you would give to our minds understanding, that you would illumine our hearts, we would be receptive to your word. We pray that we would hear it and see how the intricacies of the law affect us, how the law has been fulfilled in Christ, how it has ceased, but how also it continues as well. We pray that you would help us glorify you in this endeavor and that we would not only have it in our minds as a head knowledge, but we would practice what we hear in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 5 verse 1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Once again, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We'll talk a bit about that in just a moment. We would turn to Colossians 2. So bear in mind that idea of freedom, Christ setting us free. We're going to read verses 8 to 23. The primary portion is verses 16 to 23, but we want to read the context as well as some of Verses 8 through 15 have bearing on our topic here tonight. Beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Ascends the reading of God's word. There is much going on in that text that we will not be discussing here tonight. What we are focusing on is the freedom from the law that that text presents, specifically freedom from the certain ceremonial elements of the law. And now we turn to the Belgic Confession, Article 25, an explanation of what we believe God's word teaches about our relationship to the law. Article 25 says... We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ, and that all foreshadowings have come to an end, so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Yet the truth and substance of these things remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they've been fulfilled. Nevertheless, we continue to use the witnesses drawn from the law and prophets to confirm us in the gospel and to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God, according to his will. The topic before us this evening is, as the Belgic says, the fulfillment of the law. I would guess that this isn't a topic that we would, we would be scrolling through on sermon audio, looking for sermons, and think, let's, let's listen to that. Why do I say that? Well, is this important? Is this an important topic to... To know the fulfilling of the law and how that bears on us, God's people. It is very significant, actually. And I hope we appreciate the, the brevity, the clarity of this answer, this article in the Belgic Confession, which takes what is a complicated issue and boils it down into just a few words and gives us a clear example of how we do treat the law, where many Christians are misunderstood in this area and go astray. And how do we relate to the law, to its ceremonies and its demands? How do we keep the law today? Well, to illustrate its importance, I have this question to ask us. If you were to order your own worship service, you need to decide how you're going to structure worship and what's going to be included. You're, you're making the liturgy. What do you include? What, what's, what's filling the worship service? Is it sacrifices? Should that fill the worship service? Should we burn incense? Should we have a processional where we carry a cross, where we have an altar? Should, should we do that? Should we have washings? Should we dress up as, as priests? What would we add? What would we take? Now, and now, if we added a stipulation to that, well, what we have in worship can't just be like, well, we pass out bags of Skittles and these things. It has to be, this is according to God's word. So if we're going to regulate worship, it has to be according to God's word. That's just in keeping with what God's word says. We've gone through that before. So now you think, well, what's included in this worship service? How do we worship the Lord? 
This might seem a bit abstract. What are we talking about here? Well, it was the reformers who brought a simplicity to worship that many churches don't understand or know. A simplicity in its beauty. And that's our first point we look at this evening. Why must we understand that Christ fulfilled the law? Why must we understand this? Have you actually ever wondered why our worship is as simple as it is? When we read Exodus as we're going through, it's not quite as simple as this. There is regulations and rules. There's so much to keep in mind, so much to do, so much ceremony. So many images, bells, vestments. And today there has been a certain backlash. You see, our churches in the evangelical churches, some broad, broadly speaking, have gone so casual, so casual in worship, so every day and, and run of the mill, that what has happened is there are those in our churches who crave something deeper. And because they crave something deeper, they turn to those, those religions or those branches of Christianity that have high liturgies, that have the bells and the incense, the vestments, the ceremonies, the priests and the altars. Well, why don't we? That's really what we're talking about today. Our very religious life, our worship, why we do what we do. The New Testament church, as the apostles set it up, took upon, a very, took upon itself a very simple form of worship that was devoted primarily to what? God's Word. God's Word became that centerpiece, which makes sense. God's Word was in development. The apostles were laying down the foundation. And we have before us, in God's Word, in the Bible, the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. The very, as we sang, the very way in which God speaks to us. Speak, O Lord. This is what He does. The Word becomes central. That's not the case in every branch of Christianity or those who claim Christianity. Other things rise to the surface, ceremonies, even sacraments that rise to an importance that is separated from the preached word. Something that we, as reformers, would say you cannot do, you cannot separate the sacraments from the preaching of God's word. The two go together. Our text from Galatians 5.1 says that for, free, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke. Of slavery. This is in the context referring to the covenant of Sinai producing, as Paul speaks in an allegorical way, children of slavery. You see this in Galatians 4.24. And this he contrasts with the children of the new covenant who he says are now free. These people are free from ceremonial laws and precision. And the point he's trying to convey is that in the Old Testament, all of these ceremonies and symbols were meant to, like a tutor, take our hand as we were immature people, as we were young and the youth, and to take our hand and guide us and pull us along to point to Christ. That was the point of the ceremonies and symbols. It was a tutor. It was a tutor to put us on the right direction and the right path. But in the new covenant with Christ, who has come as the fulfillment, there is a maturity that is reached in God's people. The maturity of no longer needing ceremonies to take our hand and, and guide us there every step of the way, to illustrate a point every step of the way, we have God's Word. We have God's Word, and thus the ceremonies and symbols of these things have been done away with. You see, the New Testament views the New Covenant as freeing the people from the shadows to joyfully live in the reality of Christ. As great as the Old Testament is, the New Testament speaks of it in this shadowy form. 
It was true and right. It is true and right, and yet it doesn't present as clearly Christ and the gospel as does the new covenant, the new testament, which is its fulfillment. Because we're so far removed from it, we don't realize what freedom from the ceremonial laws meant. We also will not, and this is important, we will not understand the New Testament if we don't get this point. Almost every book in the New Testament deals in some way with the cessation, the stopping of the ceremonial law. The apostles are routinely dealing with those who are preaching some kind of adherence to these Old Testament laws, to circumcision that must be done in order to be saved, to sacrifices and the sacrificial system. Why would that be? Think of it this way. The change from the ceremonial system and the Old Testament form of worship to what we have now is so radical, it would be like if we experienced the reverse. Think all if we had to now, the leadership in the church says, this is the new way to worship. We need to install an altar. And we need to create a tabernacle. And we need to have a holy place and a holy of holies. And we all need to get animals and bring them and sacrifice them. And we need to have the cleansings and ceremonial washings. And oh, we are going to structure our year according to the religious festivals. And you're going to need to travel to Jerusalem to do all of these things. Now, if we, all of a sudden, if this was imposed on us, we would be, this would be quite a change. Well, that's exactly what happened with Christ in the New Testament. When he came and put an end to all that because he fulfilled them, now the apostles are coming to those who were educated as Jews or Gentiles who became Jews and, and converted to Judaism. They're coming to them and saying, you don't need to do any of these things. These things that made them, at least in their opinions, Israelites. This is, this is what they did. This then makes sense why so much of the New Testament is dealing with the fact that these ceremonies and symbols are done away with. These aren't what you look to for your source of assurance. These aren't what must be kept. So it's important that we understand it. The apostles were writing in the time of the New Testament, and in that time it was more important for them to show the differences between the Old Testament and New Testament, and not necessarily the unification of the two. Later in church history, it was more important to see how the Old Testament and New Testament were indeed unified as one revelation of God. Those two points are not contradictory. They're, they're showing opposite ends of the same truth. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant are one. One cohesive revelation of God that gives to us an understanding of who he is and how to worship and yet we must understand the differences in the law, the differences in the ceremonies that we no longer participate in, that we no longer do. Christ's coming has led to the end of that ceremonial system. And so you have this, do we, do we emphasize the cohesion of the Testaments? Do we emphasize the differences? And it depends on the point you're trying to make. What about today? What do we need to emphasize? If I had to characterize our time, I would say we need both. We face attacks on the outside of those who disrupt the Bible, who point and say that it's this jagged, it's this sort of picked stories that have no cohesion, no storyline. And to them, we need to say, no, the Old Testament, New Testament are that one revelation of God. 
Yet we also face internal debates where we have various Christians who will sort of over-simplify things, who will not see that there is a division, where they will try to institute laws, or they will even see a reinstitution of a ceremonial system. Well, that can't be. That, that goes against everything we've read in God's word, that it is Christ who has put an end to that. This is why it's important that we understand it, and may not seem it because we're pretty well established in our practice. But it becomes more important when you start thinking of, well, what are we to, to do in our church? What do we allow to be done? I want to read a quote from P.Y. Young. He writes about the Belgic, and when it was written, he says, By the time of the Reformation, worship had become so elaborate in Roman churches that the gospel was buried under a mass of symbols and ceremonies. The attention was directed away from Christ to the church. To defend these new ways of worship, the hierarchy continually appealed to the Old Testament forms. We see it. We see it in the terminology they have. Priests. An altar, a continuation of the sacrifice of Christ. You see, this is why it's important. How does that sneak into the church? The office of priests, we don't have priests. We don't have an altar. This is why, because Christ fulfilled these things. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand the gospel. And that's the point. If we think we need an altar to continually sacrifice Christ, we don't realize that that sacrifice has been, has been accomplished, it's been done, and no further sacrifice remains. We don't see that Christ is our high priest. We don't need, we cannot institute another priesthood. That would be sinful for us to do. We have our one high priest in heaven. And so during the time of the Reformation, many saw this problem, but then there was those who responded in wrong ways, those like the Anabaptists who went so far the other way to virtually reject the Old Testament. The Old Testament wasn't even needed anymore. It was, there was no purpose to it. And there were other groups in the Reformed camp, or those close to the Reformed camp, like Lutherans and Anglicans, and they set aside the Roman Catholic doctrines that were false, but still wanted to retain as many of the ceremonies as they could that they thought were, were not too far, that didn't cross the biblical line. The Reformed, us, our, our history, took a different approach, and that's what we see in the article today. What we see is that whatever God plainly instituted in the New Testament church was our obligation, but all other rites and ceremonies were banished, were put away. And so the Reformed defended the unity of the Bible, the unity of the law, but recognizes, recognized the differences in administration. So that's that first point. Why, why are we doing this? Why are we talking about this? Our second point, in what way has the law been fulfilled? In what way has the law been fulfilled? The Belgic begins, we believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ, and that all foreshadowing have come to an end, so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. For us to understand what the Belgic is trying to say, we must understand the reform principle between law and gospel. Between law and gospel. The law and gospel must be kept together in one hand and distinct on the other. They certainly relate to each other. 
Yet, if you are looking at salvation and how salvation comes about, the law has no ability to save and so must be distinct. And so the Reformers said, you cannot confuse the law and gospel. The gospel is what saves. That is what must be preached and presented throughout all of God's word. And yes, the law is taught as a rule of life, but it is not what saves. In terms of justification, this meant that the law only condemned And as we were reading in Colossians, this is the point. If you are going to turn back to these things, you will find no salvation there. There is no turning back. There is no reinstitution of these ceremonial laws. What once was the correct way of worship is now a sinful way of worship. There is no salvation there. In God's word, the law and gospel are not in opposition, but they serve a different purpose. The law shows us our sin, shows us how to live, but it does not bring salvation. That is the gospel. And so, how does the law cease? Well, the elements of the law that were ceremonial, used to point to Christ, have been done away. Christ fulfilled them all. Ido de Bray, the author of the Belgic Confession, was communicating that both the, both, the law is both canceled and continues. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Our texts from Colossians say much the same With the apostles, we believe that the church is meant to preach God's word, is meant not to return to these ceremonies. We read the stories of scripture as one story, though multifaceted. It all points to Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of it all, but some is left behind. And that is those ceremonial elements. So that's the way in which the law ceases, our third point. In what way does the law continue? what way does the law continue? This gets at the understanding of the three uses of the law. The three uses of the law we're familiar with. The first use is for, to, teach us, to teach us of our sin and need for Christ. The second use of the law is to restrain us from sin through a threat of punishment. And the third use of the law is to govern our life, to show us how to live. The Belgic here very clearly references the first and third use of the law. It says we are still given the law, and we are given the law to lead us to Christ, to show us our sin, and it is a rule by which we govern our life. This is how we are to understand it. So the law continues, it continues in these three uses. The Belgic says, even though the ceremonial law and civil laws have been abolished, it it says, yet the truth and substance of these things remain for us in Jesus Christ, in whom they've been fulfilled. So you have those who say, Old Testament, done. Old Testament, gone away. That's the the Anabaptist. No use for it. You have the Roman Catholics who have basically reinstituted a version of a ceremonial system. And what the Belgic is saying is it's saying, no, the Old Testament is not worthless. It's useful for its instruction of Christ. We don't just push it off and treat it as if it's nothing nor do we reinstitute it again. The truth and substance of what the ceremonial law set forth, the truth and substance of sacrifices and cleansing, all these things, remains in Christ. It is true that everything the sacrificial system that was conveying is conveyed in Christ. 
It is true that all the religious and ceremonial washings meant to purify have indeed taken place in Christ. The truth and substance remain for us in Christ, though we don't turn to that again. This is also why the Belgic says, Nevertheless, we continue to use the witnesses drawn from the law and prophets to confirm us in the gospel, to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God according to his will. That portion of the Belgic shows that we preach the whole counsel of God. We don't have simply a New Testament. We have an Old Testament and a New Testament that both have their worth. The Old Testament shows us Christ. We see him revealed in it. And we ought to and should go to it to see the gospel present even there. That we gain a greater understanding of Christ. We don't just cast it off. This is... All that this article is trying to convey, the reform came to say there is this difference between the law and the gospel. And so we have a simple worship. We have that in the reformed churches, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful because what really matters, what was really being conveyed in the ceremonial system, we've seen him. We have him. Why is our worship simple? Why don't we cloud it with ceremonies, visible manifestations? Because that gets in the way. Our worship service is centered on the Word of God as it is sung and prayed, as it is preached, proclaimed. This is why our worship is structured the way it is. And I want us to, to have an appreciation for that. I know that this is rather technical. I know that there's a lot here that may not seem that interesting, but how does it become very relevant? What happens when you're in school and your friends say it's Ash Wednesday? We want to go and contribute and participate? What are you doing for Lent? Now, now how do we respond to that? It's not wrong to be reminded of our sins. It is not wrong to fast and to give something up that we would see a way in which to pray to God as that reminder. In fact, fasting and doing those things are good disciplines. And so it's not wrong to necessarily do that, but as ceremonies to be performed, well, what do we do? We, we should say, well, if the church is requiring this, that's wrong. That's not a ceremony that God put in place. What does God's word say? What does Colossians say? Why do you turn to those who regulate and say, do not, do not taste, do not see, do not touch? What about a liturgical calendar, a church year? Are we obligated to keep certain festivals and ceremonies? Well, no, we aren't. We are also meant from this, this may not be apparent as a reading of this shows, but we can see the application. We have two ceremonies. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We don't need more. We don't need to put ashes on our heads as a sign of sin. When the sign we've been given in baptism says you are cleansed in Christ. We don't need a sacrifice or a season of required fasting because we have been forgiven in Christ. 
and trying to walk that line to say not all elements of doing those type of things is wrong. It isn't. But as a ceremony instituted by a church and required, it is. That is not the way God calls us to worship. So we look at the church calendar and understand we're not bound to festivals and times. Rather, we have freedom. In freedom, Christ has set us free. We are free to gather to worship God every week and even more if that is beneficial. We are not kept to such a calendar. We are able to use the full word of God and not erase any portion of it. The foreshadowings are done. The true substance has come in Christ. Just think of all the ceremonies and things that could weigh upon you. All the things that you would have to keep as various stipulations and laws that you actually don't keep and don't have to keep. You're free. It's the difference between being a child led by that tutor by the hand and being an adult who has the freedom to worship, who has the freedom to understand and know all that God has taught, who doesn't need to have the curfew. That's like the ceremonial laws. That's what that was like, like a curfew to a child. We're not in that. We're in the place of a simple, beautiful worship that always points to Christ. And we turn to him as the fulfiller of the law, who keeps the truth and substance in every way, who has freed us from all external stipulations of the Old Testament and has given to us that great freedom. We praise God for this. Let's bow in prayer and praise his name. Father in heaven, we are so thankful, thankful for your word that gives to us freedom. We pray that we would be mature in how we worship you. We praise you for the simplicity of worship now, and it's not a downgrade, it is rather an upgrade for the fulfillment in Christ has come. We are able then to set the entire worship service to focus on on your word, on Christ himself. We praise you for that great truth. We ask for wisdom as we encounter various stipulations from others. As others ask us about our faith, why we worship the way we do, we pray that it would give us an opportunity to point to Christ, point to what he has fulfilled. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.